Long, and you're listening to The Digital Dialogue, a podcast dedicated to cultivating the excellences of dialogue in a digital age. This is episode 73, and today we are at the in at the Presidio in San Francisco at the Public Philosophy Journal's first ever writing workshop. I'm here with my uh, founding co-editor, uh, Mark Fisher, and uh, we have uh, Michael Burroughs and Desiree Valentine here, who are two participants in the writing workshop. And we're gonna. This is going to be the uh, first of a series of conversations that we're having with the participants in the Public Philosophy Journal Writing Workshop, and um, just to talk a little bit about how it's been. So maybe, Michael and Desiree, you could talk a little bit about, well, who you are and, and, and what your project is. Um, so I currently uh, work at Penn State at the Rock Ethics Institute and Department of Philosophy. Um, the work that I do at Penn State is also informing, in part, the, the project that Desiree and I are working on, uh, which is doing uh, publicly engaged philosophical work in K-12 schools, um, so doing philosophical outreach, um, teaching, and research with uh, children, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. And I'm a PhD candidate in philosophy and women's studies, and I've been working with Michael over the past two years. Um, as part of the philosophy outreach program in the Department of Philosophy. So this project really emerged out of your own, you know, practices together, your own work together, and going out and doing philosophy with children. Yeah, very much so. Um, over the past two years, Desiree and I have been working on a project, uh, specifically with early childhood populations at two uh, state college schools, so uh, kindergarten and pre-K students, um, and really. You know, we've been thinking a lot about what philosophy has to offer early childhood populations and what early childhood populations have to offer philosophy. And that's made us think a lot about um, connecting that work up with broader discussions of public philosophy and the goods of public philosophy. Yeah, yeah. The, um, so, so how has it been so far here at the... So the, the idea was a couple of days of, of focused writing. How, how did you navigate that? I think it's been great. I mean, I feel like we've been able to produce much more in the short period of time that we've been here Mm -hmm. because it's been, one, you have the time and space to do it, and then two, you also have the energy um, from people around kind of supporting your work and, yeah, just being energized about it. It's helpful, too. Did you, uh, I mean, navigating the, the collaborative process, so are you, did you guys sort of are you writing paragra- whole paragraphs together, or are you splitting sections off and doing that? How are you doing? How are you navigating that? <laughs> well, we've been we basically you know talked about the overall vision for the paper and did a, a rough outline, and then we divided up our writing by sections. Mm-hmm. Um, so Desiree's been working on the first section; I've been working on the second section, and um, you know we've been exchanging our work as we've been you know for each writing block, sending each other's work that we have, commenting on each other's work. And then reviewing it afterwards. Okay. So um, yeah, it's been a it's been a really helpful process. And, and like Desiree, uh, I agree. We produced a lot, and I think having the time and the space, and then being in a community of folks that are all committed to publicly engaged work um, and excited about that uh, that that's a very exciting experience. which also generates you know um, you know our own writing and enthusiasm too. So it's been great. And I think in this experience, I'm learning different styles of collaboration. I think what we kind of organically came up with has worked really well, but um, I'm sure there are plenty of other ways, and I think we'll be able to hear a lot from the other participants about their styles, and we could think further 
about that as we mm-hmm. go on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, think one of the things that's interesting, I think both to Mark and me as we think about the journal, is what, you know, you know what are the habits and, and characteristics of collaborative philosophy in this sense where we're, we're, not only are you sort of collaboratively writing together, so you have a joint project that you're already sort of focused on, but how can those of us who are on the, on the periphery of that and the people in, in here at the workshop, Mark and I, uh, on the journal side, but of the wider public, how can we participate in that in ways that enrich the work? You know, and that that's a that's a an orientation that we're we've been talking a lot about actually in the last couple of days. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't think I've ever done collaborative writing in a more formal way, and this allows for those channels. Yeah. Um, I I mean, as philosophers, you even if it's not recognized as much as it should be, we're always kind of getting ideas from each other, working collaboratively in the smallest of spaces, just, you know, passing conversations in the hallway or something like this. But it's it's been nice to have the kind of formal channel um, opened up to kind of work collaboratively. Yeah, yeah. So, so how, how far are you? Where are you in your project? Are you... You know, and, and, and kind of where is it? I mean, I know you you've, you've, you you were thinking about having sort of both the, the pre-college, the philosophy and children, and also an articulation of the value of public philosophy. So kind of where are you in that, in that whole process content-wise? Yeah, I think um, it's been really, I mean, as we've talked, you know, with each other and then listened to other conversations in the group and just thought more about, the, you know, public philosophy in general, um, I think kind of at least two things have happened. I mean, one, we've, we've written a lot. We have a good amount of structured material for our paper. Um, so we're happy with the progress we made there. But we've also kind of thought a lot about so other dimensions of public philosophy that we need to be addressing more and, and kind of thinking, you know, for, for the purposes of writing a, a good paper. And so um, I think the main things we've accomplished are, one, kind of mapping out different types of public philosophy, the way that term is used, and then what counts as public philosophy. And then thinking about... Um, Situating pre-college philosophy um, within that, within those discussions, as maybe as an important addition that also may be overlooked in a lot of the current discussions of public philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so, one question I think we've both been thinking about is, you know, who is the public in public philosophy? Um, and I think that's that's a question that we want to raise and um, and address from the vantage point of of uh, doing work with children um, um, specifically is making us think about that but I think there are other you know populations you could raise that question for too who, who is included in the public who is you know even well intentioned you know uh, public philosophy who might not be being considered in that discussion mm-hmm. so that's been an important question that we've kind of come to through some discussion um, as well right the um, uh, so are, are you in a position to uh, to to post something that would be open for review soon, or is this something that you think in a couple of weeks? Or I think I mean, I can see what you think. Desiree, <laughs> yeah. I, I think I think basically we have a good. We're approaching you know the first and second section being in in good enough shape to share. Mm-hmm. Um, like the third section and our kind of final upshot are still pretty raw. Yeah. So I'm thinking probably um, see what we can get done the rest of the day, and then maybe you know next next week yeah. or so I'll be able to be able to post something. Well, and how? And, and go ahead. I was just wondering, sort of what what kinds of things are you thinking about as sort of the the potential value add for the next stage in terms of getting somebody involved and uh, getting others to look at it? What kinds of things do you think at this point, at least sort of provisionally, you might be most interested in 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 getting feedback on or, or places where. 
there are things where other viewpoints might help you push certain things forward. Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. I, I, and you haven't, you might not have had a, a lot of time to think about that, but. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I think a, a lot of what we're working on is new to us in the sense that we're kind of trying to explore this broad term and what it has meant for a lot of different people. So I think I'd be very interested in other individuals who kind of perhaps work more closely um, in this general field or subfield um, if they're sensing what we're sensing about um, the field and maybe its um, potentials and shortcomings. Yeah, and I I think, you know, to to build on that, um, you know, we're talking about public philosophy and we're making some judgment calls about what is central to the practice of public philosophy, which is, you know, there's a lot that's packaged into that. I'm interested if other people think that we're, we're maybe missing aspects mm-hmm. that they think are crucial mm-hmm. to understand what public philosophy is that we want to go right. into the paper. And I, I also think that um, in the discussion of pre-college philosophy or philosophy with children, you know, given that we're not writing for a population of people specifically who are doing work with children, maybe some are, but the whole population that's reading the journal won't really right. give that, you know, that help. Right. Um, what angle would be best to take? You know, I mean, should we talk about it in general terms? Should, should we be highlighting more of the actual work that just we do on the ground, mm-hmm. you know, like a very mm-hmm. applied right. discussion? So I think that's been uh, trying to kind of situate a discussion like that with the broader um, uh, critique, but also trying to amplification of public philosophy we're trying to do, trying to situate those pieces together, something mm-hmm. that would be helpful to get feedback on. Great, great, yeah. great. Um, maybe as a final kind of question, um, how have you felt about exposing your work just like at this earlier stage i mean it's it's a little bit daunting to to i mean we've we've created a nice group here who uh of, of people who are really quite generous to one another and thoughtful so i it's a kind of a safe space in that regard but we're really going and asking you to put it out there mm-hmm. in public and even if the platform isn't quite ready just at the moment to do that it is going to be ready and is, are are we what do we need to do as you know colleagues and as scholars to get ready for that yeah i think it's all about changing those conventions that are you know have been established and making um, like me as a a writer feel more comfortable and that this sort of space um, definitely does that and just to know that there are others who kind of share those intuitions about mm-hmm. You know, not having to have a perfectly polished draft to share with one another to gain really important feedback and actually to help the process um, develop much, um, much in a much better way. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I really like that the idea of having you know having feedback from an early stage, even if it does feel like you're you know you're exposing yourself right in a way that you normally uh, are trained not to do in some ways, right? Uh, but I think that really will be helpful, and I feel like being in a safe space here and kind of knowing the people we're working with is you know, I feel very I feel comfortable with that. Um, I will say you know that on any level that produces any reservation about it is sometimes like why I would for instance I wouldn't be say well, we should share a draft this afternoon is sometimes because especially if you're taking like say a critical perspective on something mm-hmm. sometimes you you know what that critique is but you need to build under it and flesh it out I think to otherwise it could be read in a way that's harsher than you right. want it to be right. so things like that things yeah, like that ones, um, yeah. you know uh, I feel like particularly I'd like to address more and besides just making it 
intelligible enough that but, it would be worthwhile. <laughs> there is that. <laughs> right. Exactly. Great. Great. Well, thank you for coming to the workshop and for joining us uh, on the digital dial. Thanks for having us and organizing. Yeah. Okay, so now we are uh, here with uh, Eric Webler and uh, Jennifer Stolman, who have a project on uh, encouraging a uh, culture of, uh, of encouragement, or cultivating a culture of encouragement, maybe is a better way to say it. And uh, so tell us a little bit about your, about your project. So um, my background in, in philosophy, um, you know, coming to Mississippi, I was sort of shocked by the challenges for education that, that, that are um, all over the place in the state. And so when I thought about what I wanted to do in terms of, of focus, I wanted to think about uh, the ways in which philosophy can contribute uh, to rethinking some of the challenges we face. My background's in, in Dewey's philosophy. And uh, we're a democratic society in which, you know, some of Dewey's ideas have had a lot of influence on education, and yet we have such frustrations in Mississippi. I'm also uh, concerned with justice. Uh, and when you have schools in which more than 60% of students, you know, drop out, something's going wrong there. Uh, and, and we have a lot of schools in, in the around 60 range, uh, quite a few. Uh, and so... When, when thinking about these issues in Mississippi, you know, there is an overlap in terms of the problems of education with the problems of poverty as well as with the problems for, uh, of race. And I found a natural fit in uh, meeting with and working with the William Winter Institute for Racial Reconciliation. Uh, and uh, my, my own interests in, in culture uh, are ones that you know have led me to see incredibly uh, uh, powerful forces going on at work in Mississippi, and to and to feel the, the palpable force of culture there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, uh, thinking about what uh, Dewey and philosophy has to contribute uh, among the the, uh, the useful ideas that that uh, Dewey had was to think about the ways in which education can help to shape culture intelligently and for the sake of, of justice and democracy. And so that's what got me thinking about how uh, this troubling culture or many cultural issues we have in Mississippi, uh, perhaps we can think about how to reconstruct our efforts to uh, overcome those challenges. And so uh, I met with uh, Jen Stolman and, and uh, one of her colleagues in the Winter Institute, and we talked about um, some of my ideas, which seemed very much uh, to be supportive of what the Institute was working on in terms of the Summer Youth Institute. So we're here to write about our collaborations and how these theories work together. And, and uh, so I'll invite Jen to uh, speak to her experience. Yeah, I mean, it, what's wonderful is it, are the ways in which sometimes we, we think in terms of a single highway, which is theory and then to application. And what I'm discovering is not only um, the ways in which theory can be applied on the ground with youth development work or youth leadership work, but also the ways in which I can explain to Eric what we're doing and he can um, come back to theory and the extensions of the original theory or other theories and ask us to consider this in our practices with the students. So I love the two-way intellectual highway. And so what's happening here is... um, Oftentimes when you do community work, uh, funders who are, uh, who are not used to the ways in which community is operating and they like to impose structure, or impose ideas, or impose goals, uh, sometimes if you don't have, quote-unquote, the legitimacy of academic theory behind it or scientific data, then it's considered um, 
a little bit hoo-hoo, a little bit mystical, a little bit unserious, and they, 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 they often criticize it uh, without, I mean, from afar, very rarely do they come down. And so the ways in which we can not only support and legitimate it for funders through this, but also engaging social justice activists, youth activists, addressing the many problems in Mississippi, Mississippi the social, political, and economic uh, problems, the ways in which the theory that's already written, has been written can be applied. And what's interesting about this is, of course, most of the community activists are not philosophers or historians. <laughs> and, and I have always been fascinated in the antagonism between uh, academics and community workers. And this public philosophy workshop and the ways in which we've been writing um, have actually been an easy fit. Uh, we are up to several thousand words. And we still have more to go, and it really is because it's a natural collaboration. My expertise has some nice boundaries, so does Eric's, and what that does is we're learning from each other in really non-threatening ways. There's no sort of academic competition or who's more legitimate in the work that they do, and I find it really useful. I, I think it might be helpful to, to uh, hear an example of that. So I'm obviously a big fan of John Dewey's philosophy, and when thinking about doing research and work and, and, and experiments uh, in, 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 in efforts to help uh, disadvantaged young people, you know, I, I, I was coming to the process thinking about, you know, finding good social science research that I was going to use to sort of inform how I do some of these things and, and we'd be able to, you know, gather data and so on. And, and Jennifer was the Deweyan. She, she said, wait a minute, wait a minute. How are you involving the community in doing this research? Are you being this outsider? Right. You, know, uh, you know, you don't have to be the student of Dewey to realize that that's right. <laughs> you know? I mean, in fact, in, in fact she, she, she uh, uh, really reinforced for me something that I'd, I'd, I'd studied and thought about, but in going ahead in practice... I, you know, I, I saw how, how true it, that, that insight was and kind of you can sort of lose sight of that when you're just trying to be this, this scholar who's read so many pieces about something and you think you have something to offer. Uh, but you can also... Which you do, which you, you know, have a great right. deal to offer, yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. But that's right. But at the same time, there were some interesting ways in which, um, you know, I found the results of what we did humbling insofar as, you know, the, the match between audience, the audience isn't the right word, participants, mm -hmm. right, in, in the effort... Um, you know, I, I, I did collaborators. Yeah, I, I didn't quite quite uh, see coming some of the outcomes uh, the, in terms of the fact that you know the, the material we were working on needed to be better tailored to the group we were working with. Uh, but that's one of the insights you get from doing these experiments. And and so uh, to me, it was fascinating. And you know, uh, very much in what Jen does is theory. And in fact, she understood better than I did that. Way I was trying to go about it because I've I've never done these sorts of experiments before was actually you know troubling for my own principles <laughs> you know and so so but that's that's learning you know I mean that that was um, a really great insight and at the same time you have to jump into the water at some point right you know you you know, or or into the, if you to use an ugly word the hermeneutic circle at some point you got to sort of jump into it right you know and you have to sort of come to a group and and you got to pick who the group is going to be they don't necessarily always come to you right? Right, right and so and so you bring your ideas and your theories and so forth but now that we've started relationships 
Um, so and that, and you can involve folks. I want to interject on that because that's really important and because most people know this, or maybe folks in academics don't, that the community does not t trust academics. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we have a, in our country, we have a history of academics of, from all fields harvesting information from communities, stealing information from communities, and in the most egregious examples, doing harm to the communities. What happens with the public philosophy and what's going on here is, in fact, the community is factored from the get-go in the ways in which we're looking at this. This is what's so unique, that is, by building the community, by speaking, not only in the process by which you're involving not just philosophers, uh, but from a whole range of fields, but the ways in which formal and informal intelligence and knowledge are also mm -hmm. allowed to, mm -hmm. to be engaged. And I think that this is an important bridge because academics have a great deal to offer community members. But until we build that bridge of trust back... We're not going to be successful. I think that this project, but I also think what, what the larger public philosophy journal is doing, but also the discipline itself, is, is trying to stop that obnoxious town-gown, town-versus-gown <laughs> yeah. divide. Well, divide. We, did, we did, as I mentioned, I think yesterday when we were talking about how the, the journal came about and you know, um, originally it was called the Journal of Public Philosophy, and we we have intentionally calling it the Public Philosophy mm -hmm. Journal because we're, we're we want public to mm -hmm. be first mm -hmm. in in the title, mm -hmm. and and partly symbolically is because we want um, the communities to be as much a partner in the creation of the content of the journal as the academics. So. And also, I think, to remember that um, when we take the gown off, mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm. uh, we're part of the town. That's right. And that, and that <laughs> our responsibilities and our activities uh, um, in those realms uh, can be, you might argue, need to be just as substantive, just as important, um, uh, both to us and to, uh, and to those around us. And if we're not... This, this may be another way in which uh, <laughs> it may not be exactly Deweyan, but um, you know, the, the idea that, that the role, historically, traditionally, one of the roles um, of, the, uh, of, of, of the academic is, is not just to uh, play a specific, a specific role within their academic status, but also to exist within the community in ways that, that uh, do, uh, do some things uh, and rely on the work of others and, 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 and complement the work of others in important kinds of ways. Well, I, I think that's plenty to do, and I, I'd only add that the two, two forces that we, we need to worry about uh, are, one, that people think that you know, within philosophy, if you're doing public engagement, what you're doing is writing for the New York Times or, or just doing something nationally. And there's sort of a dismissal or, or, or uh, you know, looking at... Uh, uh, um, uh, from above at those who do work in the local community, as, mm -hmm. as if that's far less impressive than, than say... And we've talked about this, which times. is really important, because I've been on both sides. I fulfilled an academic career with all the expectations. And in fact, what is more rigorous, what is, I think is more difficult, is translating these academic theories... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, to something that is, is relevant and resonates with the community. It's easy, as we know, not easy, I don't want to dismiss the whole uh, learning process as you get your doctorate or your higher <laughs> degree, but once we learn the sort of language or rhetoric of our disciplines, it, we have a facility in that. Right. Now what we need to do, and I think it's rigorous to make that language and those concepts accessible right. to community members, because what is the purpose of producing right. knowledge? Yeah. 
Right. Exactly. So, so where are you now, and sort of in the process? And we're verbose, as you can tell from this podcast. <laughs> so we're gonna have a lot of words, <laughs> like that. Okay, that's good. We have like seven. We have no pages. Like, there's no pages on the public philosophy journal, so there's no page limit. <laughs> so, so what we did when when we um, planned the proposal was to uh, think about our collaborations and about um, two main questions that were at the heart of what we were working on together. Uh, one of them had to do with how exactly one can combat cultures of discouragement or stated affirmatively, affirmatively how we can sort of construct or shape cultures that are encouraging. And then uh, uh, that, that, that's about sort of the, the individual's experience as well as what the forces are at work. But then the next step is to think about how that can be systematized or made into policy. Uh, and um, so, so our main emphasis in what we've done so far has been on the first question. Uh, and then we are going to, because it's getting to be almost 8,000 words now and we're not done, uh, we're going to sort of decide that the second section is going to be shorter and sort of ideas and proposals for elements of how policy can sort of uh, em- embody what's needed. So we've, we've sketched out um, the definitions of in, uh, what exactly we mean by encouragement and discouragement. What are the components of that or how, how, how do we work through that? Then we've talked about, uh, we, we have outlined and, and expanded upon um, the strategies that we use, and those can range from context, um, mentoring, continued engagement, mm-hmm. um, respecting students, valuing the perspectives, understanding um, knowledge is shared across age and experience. Um, Eric has been providing wonderful context for uh, Mississippi history and, and what students specifically are facing. Um, Eric is also providing wonderful um, the theoretical underpinnings for, as I'm talking about what's being done and what motivates us and, and what are our strategies, He's, he is providing the theory. And, and the, the only thing we have left really is to finish some of that up and then, um, so when someone's reading a case study, mm-hmm. we want to we finish off with the paragraph which is, okay, you don't necessarily need a nine-day program, but how can you apply this in your schools right now? How mm-hmm. can you apply this in your formal and informal educational spaces? Mm-hmm. So that will spend right. some time. So here are the strategies, but how might they translate? Great. Well, one of the difficulties in our way is, is, is that um, to get to what we think we ought to do, which is aspirational as a culture of encouragement, first thing you got to do is to stop some of the practices which are horrifically discouraging, mm-hmm. right. which we call school-to-prison pipeline, for instance, or the fact that uh, Mississippi is one of the 19 states that still uses corporal punishment and that uses it, in fact, in the highest proportion, mm-hmm. right? And so if you have a school district, for instance, just one county away from where we live uh, that, that uh, uses, that paddles, recor- that, paddles Paddle. that records corporal punishment 2,759 times in one school year, that was the big number I remember, right? Uh, and, you know, and that's in 180 days, which you know divides out to every 20 minutes. What kind of culture are they? Are you creating in the school there? Do kids want to stay there? Do they want to ask a question? Right? You know, it, 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 the the notion of discouragement that's at work is is sort of. Uh, so powerful that you know what we want to do is push people to think about the encouragement of you know empowering critical thinkers. But when you're beating a child so often, you know they they're not going to raise you know a hand or or, or a criticism or a, a question that someone might take in the wrong way, right. and so they want out. And and it's it's the challenges are so deep, uh, but at the same time, it, for a moral thinker, you know the mission is so clear. And so and there's, there's, there's uh, some sad parts when you know the story of Mississippi, and yet it's incredibly inspiring. 
that that you know it's so it, there are certain things that are so clear that you can be an advocate for. Uh, and, and some folks struggle with what they want to sort of devote themselves to. And I don't think we have much of a challenge in Mississippi, you know, as far as yeah, But it goes. also highlights, like, so in the ways in which Mississippi has been utilized as a scapegoat for being the worst in the nation, mm. what I think that one of the driving forces for, for writing for public philosophy, the Public Philosophy Journal, is that other states, because they have the examples of Mississippi, mm-hmm. other states in the Deep South, they um, hide behind the veneer that somehow their education system creates cultures of encouragement, or these are encouraging learning spaces, and we know from No Child Left Behind, we know from the ways in which students are scoring lower on tests, or they are disillusioned, they are on uh, ADHD drugs, they are on, and the learning differences have changed, right? And at some point, it's, it's not just individual, it's environmental. And so what we're hoping is, is that people um, look at what we're doing in Mississippi mm-hmm. and can critically analyze and be open to the ways in which they need to examine how they can replace cultures of dis- educational discouragement with cultures of educational encouragement. And there's a, there's a wonderful line from William Faulkner, which I think sums that up. You know, he says, to understand the world, you've got to understand a place like Mississippi. Yeah. So I think that's one of the reasons why I don't mind at all thinking very locally. That's great. Well, we really appreciate your participation in the workshop. It's been great to have yeah. you. Been and great. thank Thanks. you for thank joining us. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you great. for having us. Great fun. Excellent. Okay, so here we are with uh, Marisa diaz Wayan and Andrea who are uh, doing a paper on nature and technology and philosophy. So maybe you guys could talk a little bit about, well, who you are, first of all, and then uh, your project. Sure. I'm um, Andrea Houchard. I'm the Director of Philosophy in the Public Interest at Northern Arizona University. Um, The program is going to be starting its fifth year in the fall. Our goal is to take philosophy out of the classroom and into the community. And we've had a really positive reception in Northern Arizona. We think philosophy is a great resource, not just for philosophers, but for the general public. And we've seen a tremendous interest um, in engaging in philosophical conversations. Um, my name is Marisa, and uh, I am the founder and director of Merlin MCC. Uh, it's actually due to launch in July. Oh. It's a small nonprofit that does uh, philosophical counseling and consult services, and I pair it with uh, Merlin Nature Preserve, which I'm a caretaker for. Um, so philosophy has been certainly a love and an interest, and I think extremely applicable in everyday matters of living. So mm-hmm. that's kind of one of the things that really drew us together was this common goal of really trying to to get it out there and show how relevant it is. Yeah, so how did you meet each other? Um, So I actually um, read an article that Marisa wrote, Uh and one of the things that really interested me about the article was that she looked at the relationship. The main point of the article was about philosophy and how it can help us grieve, but there was a section where she looked at analytic and continental philosophy and said, you know, these don't necessarily have to be opposed to one one another. Mm -hmm. They're lines that blur. And then she looked at applied and theoretical philosophy, and she said, you know, again, there's some blurring here. Mm -hmm. So maybe we could all be a little bit more generous and appreciate the work that people are doing across the spectrum. And I thought, that's right. I want to meet this woman. <laughs> and so I sent her an email, and we were both presenting at the APA last year okay. in Philadelphia. And um, we got together for breakfast. And when this opportunity came up for the Public Philosophy Journal, I thought, 
Marissa is in Montana doing really interesting work that relates to the natural environment yeah. and takes advantage of these natural resources. And I'm in Sedona, Arizona. The university's in Flagstaff, but also teach environmental ethics and very interested to doing philosophy outdoors. So I'm going to reach out to her and see if she would be interested in collaborating and we could yeah. explore this topic Great. together. So what did, tell us a little bit about the paper itself and what, where, where you're going with it. With our paper, yeah, with the paper here, yeah, here. yeah. yeah. Uh, oh gosh, this has been such a, a enlightening and wonderful <laughs> experience. Um, yeah, I mean, our, our basic idea was really to try to make a case for the uh, importance of reconnecting with nature, yeah. um, and that many of the issues that we're facing today, from an environmental and personal um, level, are uh, are really due to this sort of disconnection. Um, so we attempt to really discuss what that entails and how philosophy and technology in particular, which we probably recognize as a little bit of um, a, con- I don't know if it's a contentious claim. Uh, <laughs> um, I think it can be. It can yeah. be. Um, how it can actually be a vehicle to help us um, reconnect and, right. and that philosophy as part of that is something that can really be a guiding um, activity that will foster this reconnection. Well, yeah, you have two kind of contentious claims. First, that philosophy, <laughs> that philosophy yeah. can connect you yeah, with what? nature, and then that, that, that can be mediated through technology. So, I mean, I think that's, and I mean, it sounds like you've come, you've, you've really gotten to a, a good place in in the in the um, writing process during your time here. Yeah, I think one of the key insights that we arrived at here was that technology, so some, some people will say, like, you know, we looked at Benjamin and, you know, art in the mechanical age of reproduction, and Abram and other people that really have a sort of, you know, are worried about technology yeah. and how it's driving us away from nature, the experience of the sublime, and it's problematic. And we said, like, maybe it can be positive, but we actually articulated, like, you know, it's just inert. It's not good or bad in and of itself. It's how we use it, like the, our ends and, and intentions. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I mean, so th- sometimes I worry a little bit about that, but that view of technology because it's, it's not, I mean, technology itself is always value-laden in a way. So it's not just, a, it's not a pure, it's not a tool in the sense that it just is a matter of how we use it. It's, our, it's already, I mean, by virtue of different technologies are acting on us in, in all kinds of ways, right? So I think that's something to, to, to think about. How does, that, how does that play itself out in your, you know, project? We came up with an idea, actually, for, for a part two. Yeah. And, and this yeah. gets back to our, you know, analytic philosophy or continental philosophy. Mm-hmm. I would say that overall we have an analytic approach to how we're dealing with this question right now. Mm-hmm. But we did start to talk about that, like different types of technologies, right? Just yeah. to talk yeah. about technology mm-hmm. generally is, exactly. is problematic. Yeah, right, right. But then we're thinking about and especially developing these platforms, yeah. t- talking about maybe you know a phenomenological investigation into how did this technology affect me and my connection to nature? Like, was it did it drive me away? Because some mm-hmm. certainly can, mm-hmm. or did it right. foster a connection? And if so, how? And how are these different? And we thought mm. that might yeah. be a way to explore yeah. this question yeah. and <laughs> use a different method. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think maybe to, to to mediate the two viewpoints, there's a way in which technology is inert because it's not a thing, right? Particular technologies are value-laden because they're developed in particular circumstances and they, and they do or don't meet particular needs and mm-hmm. they, can, uh, they act on us as much as, as right. they act on them. But uh, at, that, at, that, at that broad level, if you're just thinking about technology, 
um, it's it's such a it's such a just a blanket concept that um, that that you can sort of say that that um, you know having a particular view on whether technology is good or bad that's right. uh, is kind of a strange thing maybe maybe right. a strange thing to have uh, but what we need yeah. to do is talk about particular technologies the way they're produced the way the, the way they function uh, the way they function uh, the way they enable certain things the way they they hide other things. Um, uh, and that, that it's at that level that, that we can get into uh, discussions about these things that are meaningful and that, that have, have results in, in, in particular particular places. Well, I think one of the things that was exciting to me was when you started thinking about, well, maybe we could get a technologist to come develop some, yeah. you know, concrete <laughs> technology. We're excited about that, yes. So we didn't think about that, but I do think that does give us an opportunity then to also reflect on you know, if it's some kind of app, it's a mobile, I don't know what it might be that would be created, but then to reflect on, okay, here's a concrete technology. And well, then, then it moves out from the abstract down to the... And, and actually, in the the most recent draft of our paper, uh -huh. <laughs> um, we actually um, did put, put forth maybe three platforms, possible avenues to explore, um, obviously technology-based, and then, you know, kind of a jump-off point. <laughs> Great, no, that's terrific, that's terrific. I mean, I think that's really part of what we hope will happen in, in some of these articles, that they actually um, come to some kind of conclusion that is pushing you out into the wider world to sort of establish new collaborations, and maybe that can be part of the, the article that would also have a dimension of an actual new app, a new form of technology. And to that point, you also mentioned the importance of the marketing strategy with something like this, which would be... Yeah, we added that, um, too. We said at, at the end, if we develop this platform, then what, right? And so is it perhaps necessary to market this mm -hmm. in, in a different way? Perhaps it's not just enough to make the case with a philosophical argument, but if you have this platform, maybe you have to market it in a creative way that attracts people to it so they can have the experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I would like to return to yeah, the yeah. point that you made sure, in that said it was controversial that philosophy could help people. <laughs> <laughs> so I um, so think about my, my good friend Thoreau. I think oh, yes. him as my friend. Uh -huh. um, but when he discusses a man who um, lives in the wild but has no education and is somehow like undeveloped in, in some way. And so I think what Thoreau is saying is like without a certain amount of education and critical thought, even if you spend time in the wild and have a positive relationship with it and are perhaps more independent than people that live in the city and follow typical conventions, it's not enough, mm. right? We need education. We need philosophical reflection. And by spending this time and engaging in philosophical reflection, we can come to appreciate the way nature can enhance our personal lives mm. and then you know, broader social dis discussion. So I think that philosophy is really essential. Absolutely. Yeah. You're, you're, you're I think we're among the choir. Yes, <laughs> yeah, you're preaching to the choir. For sure. <laughs> That's true. And I think, you know, in a way, part of what you uh, are saying here is part of what's animating the public philosophy journal is just replace you know, nature with the public and say, you know, similar kinds of things that we, you know, are really uh, hoping that the conversation that emerges is uh, both ways, that it involves the public as much as the academics doing the work too. So, um, and the collaborative dimension of it is really critical. So part of our uh, our intent in designing this this workshop was that it, it, it would not only give people who are working collaboratively the chance to work face to face and to have that kind of uh, 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 sort of special saved time, 
uh, but that there would also be uh, connections just sort of uh, uh, with others in the group. Uh, has there been, can you talk a little bit about how both kind of the time uh, sort of to yourselves to work through these things and also the time sort of uh, in, in community with others has, has, uh, has affected the way you've worked in the last couple of days? Sure. I, last night I deliberately sought out Susan and Amy and wanted to spend time at dinner with them because their project about involuntary commitment really challenged me as a philosopher because I had a visceral reaction to this idea of making a case for involuntary commitment. You know, it's one of the strong libertarian training. It was just very difficult to think about, and they talked about the possibility of someone ending someone, you know, their life. That, that, that can be a rational decision, right, of an autonomous agent. And just because someone is ending their life or choosing to do it in a certain way, it doesn't mean that you know, they don't have certain mental capacities. And, and it, just the whole idea of taking away a person's freedom. And so but then I had to challenge myself and say, okay, that's my knee-jerk reaction. You know, uh, you know, are there perhaps cases where this can be justified? And they're working very hard, I think, from a philosophical and legal point of view to think about this this difficult question, and um, so so I really yeah, that's great. I'm yeah. glad you sought them out. I mean, I think that's one of the things that we're really trying to cultivate around uh, the journal is this idea where you can be you can have that initial visceral reaction and then come into a conversation and really have a positive influence on the on the work that's being done. So yeah. I'm glad you did that. Yeah, and to add to that as well, I think one of the things that's been really nice here is. There's so many different backgrounds and, and interests here. So to be, I think the common interest, of course, would be, you know, being able to contribute and, and work sort of towards a more common common good. And everyone's been very generous with their um, with their time and conversations. And but it's been it's been really nice to have, you know, philosophers and biologists and just this really interesting interdisciplinary um conversation that's occurred it's been great that that happened pretty naturally with with regard to the projects that were submitted so mm-hmm. so thank you yeah, for sub- right. submitting <laughs> that. thank you for selecting yeah. us yeah. Uh, great it's, well, and thank you for joining us on the digital dialogue yeah. our pleasure we are here now with susan hawthorne and amy island and uh they are working on a project on the philosophical analysis of the treatment of mental illness in cases where individuals are unable or unwilling to consent. So thank you for coming to the workshop. And how has it been going, the, the project? It has been terrific. I think we've made remarkable progress in two days. I think we came in without a draft and with an idea, but with only part of our research done. And at this point, we've got uh, two-thirds of a draft, and a lot of our research done and a direction for what isn't done. For future, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's been really great just to have the opportunity to focus and the atmosphere of having being around other people that are collaborating on other interesting projects has been, I think, part of um, what's been inspiring and motivating. And it's, it's also the opportunity to sort of have chunks of of time to work together or to work separately to kind of move from mode to mode so I've been able to talk with Susan I've been able to um, do some of the research that 
we identified that needed to get done, and then also some time for thinking and reflecting and pulling ideas together. Great. So, so and I mean, you're doing the legal, the more of the legal side of this. Yeah. Question. So we're we're going to frame our analysis around an ethics of care. Mm-hmm. So um, that's the the I guess one of the key philosophical pieces of what we're aiming to do. But um, my own background, aside from ethics, is in law, and I have okay. a law degree. So it's it's um been kind of fascinating for me too to dig into the the law of involuntary commitment which is complicated and it varies from state to state Um, in the United States there's a great emphasis on the rights of the individual the freedom of the individual so commitment for treatment is something the courts tend to restrict um, very highly (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it's it's been interesting to dig into the policy reasons and the legal reasons um, the reasoning of courts around those issues and the the arguments of legal scholars around those issues and connect them up to some of the the underlying ideas so I think part of what we're trying to do is is dig into those ideas and try to explain why is this such a controversial topic Um, why is it such a serious one and could we shed some light on how to think differently. Mm-hmm. So what exactly do you think the, the ethics of care brings to this kind of dynamic that, that is uh, going to help to move it forward, move it forward. Or at least to articulate it more clearly? Well, we're thinking that it has quite a few different strengths to it. Um, one of them is that you get away from talking about the language of autonomy in the sense of pure independence into this idea of relational autonomy, mm-hmm. which starts to take more seriously um, both the effects on families and, and citizens and also, uh, how can I say this, the, the ways in which uh, people who have serious mental illness actually need help from others and it, it takes you out of this mode where instead of someone either being autonomous or not, and then mm-hmm. either being able to say yes or not, gives you this dichotomy where people are either coerced or neglected. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's this it's it's really it's really tough. But with the ethics of care, you can think about that relational autonomy, you can think about um the sense of, of uh, moral considerability being based on more on dignity that rather than on autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got this whole list that's not coming to my <laughs> mind now. Um, One of the things that ethics of care does, and especially the idea of relational autonomy, is it allows a way to take the focus off of individual rights. Right. Right. Um, one of the, the key aspects of the existing legal framework is there's a great emphasis on the rights of the mentally ill person um, to refuse treatment mm-hmm. um, and obviously the right to, to be free and not committed involuntarily mm-hmm. to treatment programs. Mm-hmm. But um, one of the things I learned in reviewing the, the status of, of rights, paradoxically, some people who are committed to mental hospitals then exercise their right to refuse treatment so they're actually legally committed but not receiving treatment. So one of the things that an ethics of care allows at least the potential for doing is thinking about this decision about whether or not a person ought to be receiving treatment is focused on the relationship of that person with um, 
caregivers, with the community, with family, and with the government, obviously, because it's going to be a, a function of the courts or the legal system to ultimately make the decision whether or not someone can be committed involuntarily to receiving treatment. That isn't the only relationship that's at stake under an ethic of care framework. When we were talking just now um, uh, with Marisa and, and Andrea, Andrea said that she, when she heard about your project, she was, you know, initially really sort of taken aback by it, and, and it was challenging. And then she she reached it. She said she came to you at dinner last night and had a, a really good conversation. So how did that go? How was, was was that conversation? It was very very interesting. In fact, I I could when she asked me about it at first and asked about the project, I could just see her face. (laughs) (laughs) You wanted to, what? (laughs) Um, And I I think the the conversation about that, I I think, isn't surprising, Mm -hmm. given the way the whole issue is conceptualized in the U.S., because it Mm -hmm. is always seen as this impingement on freedom and liberty that we tend to hold dear. And and she said her her libertarian kind of strand strand in her thinking was really, that's what was reacting to this. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, I mean, the the ethics of care, a couple of the other strengths, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to tie this back into that. One of them is context. Mm -hmm. And just a, a really serious look at these issues are not black and white, mm-hmm. yeah. and it really, really matters who that person is and the kind of supports that they have or don't have right. in the world. And another that does really push at a libertarian perspective is the sense of responsibility mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that people have for one another, I would, yeah. ar- I would right. argue. Yeah. Um, and in a, uh, in a libertarian framework, you really don't have responsibility for other people. But in an ethics of care, you do. And I think that helps um, get us out of this mode of being able to neglect people with that. But being able to articulate that with her and have her offer challenging Mm -hmm. cases to us and us being able to to offer that that back. She mentioned that she had a visceral reaction, and I thought, you know, I had a visceral reaction too, but mine wasn't based on a libertarian upbringing, but was based on... Uh, in large part, um, you know, having a, a personal uh, connection to Virginia Tech and um, yeah. going through from afar the yeah. experience of, of uh, sort of uh, suffering with the Virginia Tech community yes. uh, in a situation that I think presents exactly the kind of case that you're talking about here where it had been identified early that this individual had some problems. Um, and instead of, of, of uh, coming at it with the... Um, uh, you know, with the, the moral clarity that some so many people seem to have had in that situation, I was struck by the tragedy of this person is from you know my area. This person you know grew up uh, just down the street from my sister uh, and uh, suffered terribly and and uh, and took his took this suffering out on others in in, in horrible horrible ways. Um, and 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 whatever it was that that enabled me to. Um, not just be content with some kind of uh, black and white hop on one side, but to see that um, that there's a very real possibility that uh, that everyone was failed by the system in certain ways, and that the system is set up in certain ways that do make these kinds of things what I would say are real tragedies, um, perhaps more likely than uh, than they would in uh, than other ways of setting up the system, um, and so I. Um, I'm very interested in in uh, in following uh, in following where your paper goes from here, and sort of using that as a way to help me think through 
um, you know, what happened in, in that situation, we could name, unfortunately, we could name any number of other situations yeah. where, uh, where it does seem like the right of the individual um, uh, is, 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 uh, is, is preferred um, over uh, the rights of those other individuals who obviously are harmed in, in or, irreparable ways. Or, or simply that yeah. the individual themselves is, um, you know, dies in the basement or whatever, whatever right, it is right, that, right. that yeah. would, would have been completely preventable. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. I think we should make it clear, too, that this is quite obviously part of a much bigger project because when you start talking about an ethics of care, another thing that's really important is the care being effective. Hmm. And we don't have the systems to systems or the knowledge to make the care effective, and so that that epistemological piece or the philosophy of science piece is going to be really important. And um, this other this other piece of looking at what we have medically and socially, mm-hmm. and hmm. connecting that back to the the, the legal frameworks, um, the law in requiring people to seek treatment if the treatment's not effective or if the treatment is simply unavailable. Um, it 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 doesn't serve anyone's interests. So rethinking in terms of relationships, in terms of community, in terms of responsibility, in terms of what actually would be the best for a person who is in need of support and treatment, care, um, rather than looking at it as this is a part of the colossal war between the power of the state versus the power of the individual mm-hmm. without taking the individual's circumstances or needs into account. Well, that sounds like a great project, and we're really happy to hear that it's moving along. And, and we really appreciate you coming to the to the workshop and uh, for joining us on the digital dial. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, so uh, here we are with our our final project, and maybe you guys can introduce yourself. Go ahead, Lisa. I'm Lisa Sisson, and I'm the director of the Heartside Glean Initiative, which was the community partner for this project that we worked on. And I'm Danielle Lake. I am an assistant professor in the Liberal Studies Department at Grand Valley State University. And I'm Anne-Marie Fauvel, also a professor in the uh, uh, Liberal Studies Department at GVSU, and I teach also biology classes, so I was the instructor for the food aspect of this project. Yeah, so we'll tell, tell us a little bit about the project and the, uh, the idea for the project, but also the, the nature of it. Yeah, well, I'm really interested in ways to span boundaries and to do more collaborative work, given the kinds of systemic, messy problems that we're facing in the world today. So I reached out to Lisa and her Heartside Gleaning Initiative. Uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, to form a partnership, but I actually wasn't teaching a course that aligned with that initiative at the time. So then I also reached out to Professor Falvel here mm-hmm. and connected the two of them, and they discussed how their vision and their values might align in a partnership between Professor Falvel's class and um, the Heart Cycling Initiative's mission, mm-hmm. and established a partnership for the fall semester of 2014 having students um, wrestle with the kinds of problems the initiative's facing as a new nonprofit and try to innovate to provide the nonprofit with resources, ideas, tools, connections that would help that help them get off the ground. That work ended in the fall. In my course, uh, Wicked Problems of Sustainability, these students picked up those initial efforts and continued forward with designing uh, and innovating around issues that the Heartside 
initiatives still needed help addressing. So, Lisa, maybe you can tell a little bit about the, the HeartSide uh, initiative. Sure. So, the HeartSide Gleaning Initiative is a nonprofit organization that um, volunteers uh, once a week on Saturdays during the harvest season from June through October in Michigan go to the markets, um, to local markets, and they collect produce that the farmers donate. Mm -hmm. And we take it back down to the Heartside neighborhood, which is the lowest income, uh, highest poverty rate in neighborhood in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And we take the food back down there that we've collected and we distribute it either through agencies like soup kitchens where people come and get food, or um, food pantries where people also come and get food, or directly to individuals uh, living in um, supported living low-income apartment housing complexes. Mm -hmm. And we do this because there is no access to healthy fresh fruits and vegetables in that particular neighborhood. There isn't a grocery store where you can shop and purchase fresh fruits and vegetables. And we know that fresh fruits and vegetables help reduce obesity and chronic diseases related to obesity. Mm -hmm. so, so when you bring your students to this... To this question, this problem, um, how do they react? How? Well, in the first semester that we did this work with Food Matters, uh, my students needed to kind of uh, get a little bit of a background knowledge on food to begin with, and then we wanted to basically take our semester-long project into the community and really kind of do real-life long kind of work. And so we asked the Heart Cycling Initiative from the very beginning of the semester to come in and tell us about themselves and tell us about what their needs and opportunities may be. And as a class, we brainstormed about some of these ideas and we kind of identified a few categories. Mm -hmm. Students broke out into groups after that, did the research. But there was a huge iterative uh, feedback loop process that was happening in the sense that throughout the semester, we engaged with the Gleaning Initiative as well as a lot of the members from the initiative. So we had board directors, we had uh, volunteers for the initiative, and we also had the Heartside uh, residents coming to meet with us. We would break bread together. We had like a series of potluck in which the students would pitch their ideas to mm. the Heartside Gleaning Initiative, and then they would get you know, feedback and information and suggestions as to what they, how they could change their ideas. So this was really working in collaboration with the initiative rather than just having students come up with an idea, a solution right. to a set problem, and then just move that on. Right. So it was really very much feedback realigning all the time. They did come up with a series of, of uh, projects in the end, which got either moved to the next level in the next semester or that got uh, that are still there, but all the students have published their findings at this point. So it's really kind of interesting that we can move this forward, bridge from semester to semester, from course to course, from instructor to instructor, still by using the community engagement work. That's great, great. And and Danielle, there's a theoretical background I know you bring to mm -hmm. this. So tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about that the, that dimension. Absolutely. So uh, the course, the, uh, so my course is Wicked Problems of Sustainability. It was designed out of my dissertation work. Uh, given and and it's just really about the fact that we're really facing a lot of intractable, ongoing, high stakes problems that are linked to one another. There are no ideal solutions. There's a lot of uncertainty involved. There's conflicts in values. Uh, we can't agree on what the problem is. So I'm talking about uh, issues like food, systemic food problems, like healthcare, like globalization, poverty, and so on. Uh, and given the nature of of the problems we're facing today, we need to pursue a different educational model. 
And we need to pursue a different model of how we work together across our institutions. So we need to work collaboratively, we need networks, and we also need a different set of habits, uh, skill sets and values so that we can collaborate, so that we can, we can hear one another. And so with that framework in mind, I really wanted to pursue what I'm going to call a feminist pragmatist model of working with, of reciprocity, uh, of fallibility, mm-hmm. uh, and inspire students to think that they had a role to play in addressing this issue, while at the same time opening them to listening to others so that we were, we were genuinely integrating ideas and, and, and developing uh, an understanding of the situation that was likely to be more comprehensive so that their ideas about how to address the problem would, were likely to be more uh, sound and result <laughs> in better consequences than otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and so, again, that goes back to that iterative component of bringing the community partner and residents in so that we're really working with them in the designs that we're coming up with and then revising and letting go of ideas that aren't going to work, that don't make sense in this situation, and, re- and revising their plan of action so that we're coming up with um, interventions that are more effective for the community partner. Mm-hmm. So tell us just a little bit about the writing process. There's three of you, and you, <laughs> you, and you wrote sections separately, or did you do kind of things? How did you, how did you navigate that? Well, I, I think initially um, Daniel came up with an outline and posted it and mm-hmm. said, here's a suggested outline, and this is what I suggest each of you could work on, mm-hmm. and do you agree or don't you, and let me know and give me feedback, and if not, let's just start writing, and she had already, I think at that point had already started maybe her section, or maybe it was shortly thereafter, mm-hmm. the section that, um, the, the theoretical section, and then um I, at some point during, I think about a month, we had a month before the workshop maybe that we started working on this, um, began writing the sections that applied to me as the community partner. And then um, Anne-Marie did the sections that applied to the Food Matters course that she taught. So, so that really, was the beginning mm-hmm. of it. Right. So you came really with a draft of some kind and, and you've been kind of honing that since you've been here. Absolutely. And I went through, I would say it went through maybe two rounds of, of all of us looking at all of the dimensions. But uh, what I, I took the proposal, divided it into an outline of, given what we said we we're going to do, this is what the paper might look like. And there's all, and just in, that in itself, so that I'm not, writing this in isolation, saying what I think Mm -hmm. happened from the community partner's perspective, but that I'm giving her that space to craft what she thought was a value in this partnership. And uh, she was able to surprise me. I would come to her and I was like, really? You got that out of it? Really? You would have come more? Right? So I, I really loved having that voice captured in your words, from your perspective, and, and instead of me trying to articulate what I think she got out of it as a community partner. Um, so I definitely would say we crafted those individual pieces and then started to play with it together and, mm-hmm. and, and hopefully bring it into a whole. Yeah. And how has that experience been since you've been here, not only sort of amongst yourselves, but also in the sort of the larger climate of all these people who are working on collaborative projects? I think that uh, for me, in, in particular, I don't know about you, but I find that it's a, it's a very efficient and productive way to actually all come together instead of just you know trying to find a little space in each of our lives which may mm-hmm. span on a week or two weeks or even a month into adding a little portion here adding a lot of portion there and we're completely immersed in it so at some point it's just like we can't even let go of it we're mm-hmm. and i think that it's very productive uh it's extremely productive and um it makes it a lot more part of a team it's makes it very collaborative in nature even mm-hmm. though we each wrote some of our parts we're 
all invested in this whole big picture idea. Um, to see it evolve too, it, it kind of evolved a little bit to the point where we were kind of renegotiating some of the stuff we had put in at the very beginning. So it's, to me, it's been a very uh, interesting experience, um, very different, uh, collaborative, and productive. Okay. Do you want to add something? No. <laughs> okay. Great. Well, we've, we've uh, had a, a great time interacting with, with the three of you, and we had a good time doing it. We, we actually practiced on or used the first time, for the first time, the, the editing, uh, peer review editing uh, platform on the journal, which we realized needs some work. So we're. <laughs> thank you. But, for, yeah, thank you're you. Welcome. For that. <laughs> we, we've been, I mean, one of the things I mentioned earlier is this, just this process of, of trying to design a platform and to try to create it in such a way that it has. Uh, reinforces the habits and the and the um, scholarly um, the qualities of of of, quali- uh, of scholarly generosity and 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 productivity in the sense of trying to create something um, that's that's better each time we sort of review it uh, is a challenge. It's been a really interesting collaborative challenge of its own, and it's been something that I didn't really anticipate that we were going to be uh, <laughs> doing when we when we conceived of this, and you know I didn't see hear all the uh, implications of it. So, um, it, but one of the things that's just been tremendously rewarding this weekend, uh, this week, has been uh, to see actual people here talking and and really and, and being involved with the whole the the spirit of what's behind the public philosophy journal. So, thank you for joining. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for hosting. Nice. <laughs> this has been the digital dialogue. <laughs>